Hello. The winner is. Oh, well, sorry, I didn't win it, Mr. Lemley. I know no one else I'd rather have beat me than you. I am the most frantically sought person in cinema land. I, Oscar, the Academy Award. Hello, and welcome back to The Snub Club, a podcast where we talk about the movie that has the most Oscar noms and no wins whatsoever. I'm your host, Danny Vincent. With me, as always, are my two other hosts, who will now say their own names, because I believe in letting everyone say what, like, their own, their own piece. Well, I appreciate <laughs> that. You know, I'm just another girl, but... Uh... <laughs> I'm to a great start. Um, my name's Starting Sarah. already. <laughs> I'm Caleb. Okay. Uh, well, before we get to talking about our movie this week, which is okay because we pretty much have done our, our prelude to most of the Oscars for this. This is a part three for 1946's films. Uh, we have to talk about the movie that got just joined the Snub Club. Now, this episode's coming out a week after the Academy Awards. Uh, and I gotta break it to the listeners just so we're honest with them. I've already told Caleb and Sarah is that uh, I unfortunately did bend and watch the Oscars because I was, I was, I was guilt-tripped too because I was told that the only reason we had cable still was because I said I wanted to watch the Oscars three months ago. <laughs> you have now cut the cord, right? So you don't end up in this situation next year. Uh, we, I mean, it's been a day <laughs> since the, we haven't done any, we haven't taken any action yet. <laughs> do we want, do we want to do like the countdown or do you just want me to announce it? I guess do the countdown, whatever, who cares? All right. <laughs> all right. All right. All right. Let's do it. Let's do it. All right. So leading in nominations, if you remember, was the power of the dog with 12 nominations. It won best director. Yay. With ten, nice nom- pick for director. with 10 nominations was Dune. I believe it won, because I'll be honest, I pretty much was not paying attention during the Dune Awards. It won six of these nominations. I'm not going to bother listening to them all. Well, you weren't well, paying attention because they weren't aired. Yeah, how are we to know what it won? Well, let me tell you. What was aired was cinematography, which I was mad at one because I think Power of the Dog looked better. Um, and then with seven nominations each, Belfast won original screenplay, which... Led to my only tweet of the broadcast I was proud of, which I want to repeat here, which was, we don't talk about brand, nah, no, no, no. I was really proud of that one. All my other ones were really, like, half-assed, but that one I thought was clever-ish. Look, it was right after the Bruno performance, which was really bad. So it was topical at the moment. And then, with seven nominations, also was West Side Story, which won for Supporting Actress. Uh, And then with six nominations was King Richard, which I think by now, as in by the time we're recording this on the Monday before you're listening to this, everyone should know that this, I think this is the one Oscar everyone knows was won. Uh, won Best Actor. Uh, moving on. We have to talk about it eventually. I know, and I don't want to. I think, yeah, we, uh, I think, yeah, we should probably, we can talk about the ceremony in general if we want after we get to our our one thing. And then with four nominations was three films. One was Drive My Car, which won international film, which there's also something to discuss about there uh, if we want to. But then, uh, Don't Look Up, 
had four nominations and did not win anything. <laughs> so we'll be covering Don't Look Up. But guess what? Nightmare Alley. <laughs> also, no, I forgot about Don't Look Up. I knew it was Nightmare Alley, but I forgot about Don't Look Up. No! Don't Look Up, what we're going to be covering in five years. <laughs> this, Don't is, look up. this is a nightmare. Nightmare Alley. You know, I was telling my uh, roommate, our editor, Joe, is like, what do you think about the movie we're gonna be, you're going to have to watch? I'm like, well, watching Don't Look Up in five years when all the ice caps have melted and California is permanently on fire and there are climate refugees like needing to get into, into the country. That's going to be a great time. Can't wait for that. I, I personally think of these two, I think Don't Look Up is going to be the better conversation to have. It's going to be a while from now. But I think talking about Adam McKay and kind of like his rise, in a sense, to being a, quote, serious filmmaker, is certainly more interesting to talk about than Guillermo del Toro doing a remake. Of a film from the forties, personally, that's yeah, but me. it's a Gamel del Toro movie. Like, I mean, I saw both these else, movies. Nightmare Alley is a better film. Um, I mean, I'm, <laughs> does does Don't Look Up have full frontal male nudity? I don't think so. Uh, yeah, I don't think so either. Drive my car is a lot of nudity. Uh, <laughs> well, we're not talking about that. Neither is Academy. A part of me was a little worried, but also it was weird because for some reason. I always take too much stock in these like anonymous ballots that get posted on the internet from everyone. And I noticed a lot of them are going for worst person in the world for international feature, which would have made sense too. Cause worst person in the world, kind of like Kona, which ended up winning everything. Uh, it's momentum peaked after the nominations. So to me, I very much thought it was a possibility worst person in the world could upset and we'd have to cover drive my car, which would have both been a bummer because I want to drive my car to win, but also drive my car <laughs> exponentially better than these other two films. So, like, but also, Amaguchi, I'm glad he won. But yeah, those will be two movies we'll be covering. Don't Look Up and Nightmare Alley. Now, do you guys have any questions for me about the ceremony that I unfortunately No? <laughs> no? Who well, cares? You, guys said, you, you, were, you were the one that just said, like, oh, we have to talk about this. So... <laughs> yeah, okay, but everyone has seen what we have to talk about. Bruno? Sorry. No, I haven't actually ever even heard that song. I'm not going to lie. Well, I, mean, I have a pretty good track record. <laughs> um, so, or we could just wait five years to talk about it. But yeah, I feel like. We talk about the ceremony. I mean, I don't think we're going to have. Like, what are we going to talk about? Neither of these movies are nominated for any. Like, Don't Look Up and Nightmare Alley weren't nominated for Actor. I don't know when. Talking about Wilson it'll be on the Flower. Wikipedia page. It's true. I think it was really funny because I saw a tweet right before the ceremony. It was like, "This is a record of like controversies," and now the biggest controversy on it is the Will Smith thing. Obviously, that well, is the. I it. want to. I want to read the parents' guide, fight, uh, frightening and intense scenes sections for the 2022 Academy Awards ceremony. Really, there's one of those. Yes. Because of six votes, this gets a severe uh, score. The actor Will Smith physically abuses Chris Rock on the behalf of soul-sucking Jada Pinkett Smith. What? He loudly cusses and then threatens Chris Rock in front of everyone there. Minutes later, he is seen laughing and smiling like nothing happened. Someone went on IMDb and wrote that. See, what's funny about that is is I feel like that's... Well, I don't want to say it's valid, because it's not. But, like... If the word soul sucking Jada Pinkett Smith wasn't on there, I'd be like, okay, sure, like whatever, thumbs up that. But like, what? it's such a weird bit of editorial, like 
flourish? Because in the long, in the grand scheme of things, Jada Pinkett Smith should not be involved in this discourse because she did absolutely nothing wrong. And like to wrap her in with the dumb decision that Will Smith made is like already if you are upset about like the joke Chris Rock made, which I feel is I don't know, it's pretty standard for Oscar jokes, but like she's already being disrespected in that sense. But then to further disrespect her by trying to pull her into this dumb discourse. I don't want to defend Will. Because I'm not going to, because I don't think he deserves the defense. But I will say, in regards to Jada and Will, they were, and that makes sense, because they are the most famous people there, but they were by far the butt of everyone's joke. Like, pretty much everyone went on stage and told a joke about Jada Pinkett Smith and Will before that happened. And, you know, for the most part, like, it's whatever. Uh, but I also assume most of those other jokes were vetted, because that's usually what they do. Um, I'm sure everyone by now who's followed the story knows that Jada Pinkett Smith suffers from, uh, I don't, I, I don't want to try to pronounce it, but like Alopecia. a hair Yeah. Uh, so it felt like a targeted joke because Chris Rock would know. Chris Rock totally, like, I, I, I get, like, I feel like they know each other. You know what I mean? Like, I've gotten the impression in past things that they know each other. But, or at least Chris Rock would pay attention to, like, celebrity gossip about Will Smith and Jada Pinkett Smith to know it, you know? I don't know. I don't... I think it was a really gross thing that happened. Uh, it was really intense in the moment, and I think what made it gross was more the fact that Will got to get a standing ovation when he won, and then got up there and spoke for six minutes, basically but saying that... Uh, you know, Richard Williams kind of, this is kind of like stuff people called Richard Williams while Serena and Venus were just there staring, like, well, not knowing how to react. So my take, I don't want to talk about this, but my take as a woman, this was an Academy Awards. I mean, you had a woman win Best Director, twice nominated women win Best Director, women won Best Director two years in a row. Um, you had a woman win Best Adapted Screenplay. You had a woman-directed film win Best Picture. And this was something that was fueled by misogyny with Chris Rock's joke. And it was also something that persistently is misogynistic with Will Smith's impassioned speech about protecting women. And... I'm very disappointed because this was supposed to be, it's not just for women. I mean, Troy, Troy Kutzer won and that's amazing. Um, like that's fantastic. Best but it's like, this Sorry. is Go ahead. like, this is something that's going to be the everlasting moment. And it completely takes away from everything else. And it's like, Will Smith, it was, the thing is, it's not about Jada. It was never about Jada. He went up there because he was Will Smith and he wanted to have this big moment. And he should have just waited 20 minutes. Like, it's just stupid. And I just, I'm tired of it. I'm tired of talking about it. I'm tired of this, like, perpetuating toxic masculinity with it. I just, I just don't, like, I literally do not care what anybody's, like, opinion about it is, except for Jada. And she's not going to say anything. <laughs> so it's like, who cares? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think you, I don't. I don't think there's anything else to add there on that personally. Uh, 
But I do want to say one other thing about the ceremony that is unrelated to the Will Smith thing that I think is relevant to what we've been talking about on this podcast for the last two episodes, which is that if we are told that we're going to put the categories off air to make the ceremony shorter, this was the longest Oscar ceremony since 2018. So I don't think your uh, your motive, like, like you can't, like you just can't, like I, I that's I know that's such a, like a jarring change in subject, but I think it is worth noting that it's like you can't tell me next year that you're going to remove more categories for show, you're going to make it shorter because you removed eight and it was longer. Well, okay, so let's do just a quick rundown here. Yes. So first we had we had eight categories removed from the telecast. Oh yeah. We had a, a lead actress of a multi-nominated film not invited, which. I mean, she was always going to be invited. They just, you know, needed the press. Yeah. Um, we have what else was before this? Well, we didn't, we didn't tell because Caleb. Oh yes, the no. Twitter, the fan the, favorite, the I, fan favorite, and cheer oh, moments. Which I've they already did not, forgotten about it. They did not tweet from their official account on Oscars night what won. So wait, unless wait. you watch, you wouldn't can know. Can we tell Caleb right now what won? Yes, because so, I stand honestly. Cheer moment went to. Um, so I'm going to tell you the winner of cheer moment, and I'm going to tell you the cheer top. moment. Okay, cheer moment so it's like the moment you cheer. cheer most in the theater. All right, so I'll give you the top three. For okay, each. okay, because the top three for cheer moment isn't funny, but the number one is. The top. It's three not. For it isn't funny. Favorite. It's a good moment. <laughs> well, sure, but it's funny to think about. The whole point of the, these being added in. I think that was. we. I just want to preface this by saying that uh, Spider-Man: No Way Home did not win any awards. It was not nominated for Best Picture. <laughs> just keep that in mind. It did not. Uh, Dune, Dune won the one one award we wanted Dune to win. So that way, Spider-Man didn't happen. So, um, but anyway, the top three cheer moments, and this is in movie history. This is not of last year. This is in movie history. Number three: <laughs> Avengers Assemble, Avengers Endgame. Number two. Spider-Man No Way Home, three Spider-Man team up. Number one. The Flash enters the Speed Force, Zack Snyder's Justice League. <laughs> it's a great this, scene! Well, wait, wait, it is, it is, it is a great scene. It's probably the best scene in that movie, besides some cyborg stuff. But this entire thing was designed to market Disney. That is what it was for. They made it for. for Disney. And it was an H- a free HBO Max add-on. <laughs> that is what happened. Furthermore... People got their speeches. Hamaguchi got played off. People got played off, but we had to have time to watch the entire sequence of Flash Entered the Speed Force. Everyone there was just basically. And again, they did not. They did not tweet the winner. You would not know if you had tweeted. I have not seen Zack Snyder's cut of Justice League. I'm not a particularly big fan of Ezra Miller, but. I think that's well deserved, and I'm very happy about it. <laughs> no, 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 congratulations to them. No, no, you know what? I'll give you the top five for fan favorite because there were ten nominees. Okay. Oh yeah, because you gotta know what. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I just want to know malignant one is no, my boy Gabriel making. I, I will spoil oh. right now. Malignant did not place. However, the top three are worth being proud of. Now, at number five was Tick Tick Boom. Uh, theater stands helped out. At number four was Spider Man No Way Home. <laughs> Which obviously was designed to win. This award was designed for Disney. To win. You should have hired more bots. Now at number three, 
was Minamata, which is the Johnny Depp movie that does not have a release in the U.S., but inexplicably qualified for this award. Twitter loves Johnny Depp. And number two was Camila Cabello's Cinderella movie. Twitter loves Camila Cabello. And the clip was of James Corden turning into a... The rat turning into James Corden. That was the clip they chose. And of course, number one went to Army of the Dead. Twitter loves Zack Snyder. <laughs> Snyder swept the award. He'll never, he'll never win a real award. So Zach, I hope he enjoys both of these. Zack Snyder won more Oscars than The Power of the Dog. Come on, <laughs> clearly he must, he must, he's more talented than Jim do, Campion, I guess. <laughs> do they send him a statue? Like obviously no. not gold. It's not a like real plastic. award. Or like maybe like a cardboard cutout. It's not a real award. I, I wish it was. It was so fun. That, that top three, watching it live, and just I feel like everyone just had a collective like what at the the Minamata because the other two movies like you've heard of but you haven't seen this Johnny Depp movie literally I don't think it exists. <laughs> like I'm very confused by it. It was just like a it's a scam for a write off that somehow <laughs> got to number three. Ugh. It was this a, just proves that Twitter is a terrible place. But, oh, but, but in this case, it's good because the Oscars got <laughs> screwed over. They were embarrassed. Disney got embarrassed. <laughs> but yeah, all of all of these controversies making for what is probably like one of the worst PR uh, years for the Oscars. And yet, all the actual awards, I'm fine with. Like, I don't think there's any major controversies there. And I'm happy that, like, Jane Campion won. Uh, I would... I'll just say this very briefly, because I think it's been... Uh, and you, we don't need to discuss it, but I think this is something that needs to be brought to light, is that I think more people should look up reviewers, uh, deaf reviewers of CODA, because they brought to light a lot of issues with the movie that I wouldn't have thought of. Uh, and I think they, their uh, concerns were dismissed throughout this entire award season. And But in all that saying... Troy Coatser, good win. I'm not going to be mad about that one. Uh, but the others, too, I would recommend people read up some deaf critics' reviews of CODA uh, before they can just say, yeah, great win. Personally, that's just me. I'm glad a female director yeah, film one, but there is, yeah, there's, there's a complexity to that, I feel like, that should be yeah, that's fair. acknowledged. Um, I'm trying to think if there's anything else here worth mentioning. Uh, I think we covered it all. I could I could go further on the mo- the categories that were uh, off the air, but I don't think I think we've covered it. You know what I mean? I don't think we need to get into it more. I think we can move on. I agree. Cool. We Let's, do have a whole movie to talk about. Let's so. never talk about this ceremony ever again. Well, bad news. Don't <laughs> look up. Nightmare Alley. Well, you know what? Although I don't I know actually... when Nightmare Alley will come up. I don't think we'll talk about the ceremony of Nightmare Alley. Don't look up. I... Actually, I'm planning on dying from climate climate change before then. So. <laughs> All right. Oh no, a comet's gonna crash on my house the week before we record. Mm. Oh wait, wait. Can I say one last thing that I don't think Caleb is aware of? This is the last thing I'll mention. Is that the fr- you know the, the ceremony was gonna go bad when the first person walked out was Daniel Kula and her, and they, the song they had to intro them was "Africa" by Toto. And that ceremony just went downhill from there. All right. 19th Academy Awards. Let's go. Uh, 
I'm going to run through these pretty quick because I've given all the details on them before. Uh, eight nominations, uh, seven wins, best years of our lives. Seven nominations, two wins, the yearling. Six nominations, one win, the Jolson. Oh, sorry. Six nominations, two wins, the Jolson story. Five nominations, two wins, Anna and the King of uh, Siam. Uh, five nominations and no wins, but a technical award eventually. It's a Wonderful Life. Four nominations and one win, the Razor's Edge. Four nominations and no competitive ones, but a special achievement award, Henry V. And finally, this week's episode, four nominations, no wins whatsoever, the Killers. All right, Sarah, what was the Killers nominated for? Well, somebody told me that the nominees were that was a killer's reference. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah. <Okay>. Somebody <laughs> told me. Best director for Robert Sodomack, who lost to William Wyler for The Best Years of Our Lives. Um, Sodomack, this was Sodomack's only Oscar nomination, but he did win a, The Golden Bear for Die Rat in, in 1955. A best film editing for Arthur Hilton, who lost to Daniel Mandel for The Best Years of Our Lives. This was also Arthur Hilton's only nomination. Uh, but he was nominated for two Emmys for Hawaii Five-O and Mission Impossible. Best scoring of a dramatic or comedy picture for Miklos Rosa, who lost to Hugo Friedhofer, The Best Years of Our Lives. As we know, Miklos was nominated 13 more times and won three. And best adapted screenplay for Anthony Weiler, uh, who lost to Robert E. Sherwood for The Best Years of Our Lives. And we previously saw Anthony Weiler was nominated for a Stage Door, but... The killer screenplay was also ghostwritten by Richard Brooks and John Huston. Nice. Um, Caleb, do you have any historic context for the killers? This is our third episode on 19. I didn't know if you had a, I, you might've had a store contest related to the film itself. I didn't know if you did or not. That's why I'm asking. Just a minute. I've got, I've got something. My wife. So, The Killers were formed in 2001 by Brandon Flowers and David Keong uh, after going through a number of short-term bass players and drummers in their early days, both Mark Stormer and Ronnie... I'm not going to try to pronounce his last name. Anyway, that was my joke. <laughs> no, um, 1947 is a much more interesting year in Hollywood history, so we'll talk more about that next episode, but we're pretty good on 46. All right. um, there is just a tiny bit of background slash historical context um so the killers was based on i think it's a novella or a short story by ernest hemingway and ernest hemingway it's a short story yeah go on sorry loved this movie he thought it was so good um but the first like 15 ish minutes are a direct adaptation of the story and then the rest is completely made up so if the first 15 minutes feel weird then <laughs> It's because of Ernest Hemingway. And then uh, I have one last thing to say, which is the story context. Uh, well, not this, the the um the I never talked about the ceremony for this year. Never. I know we just talked about the ceremony for this year, but we're not going to talk about the ceremony for this year. Uh, and that is the only big note thing of note is that Harold Russell, uh, who won supporting actor for the best years of our life actually won an honorary Academy Award for the same performance. 
because the Academy didn't think he was going to win supporting actor. So since he did win the Academy Award, he is the only person in history to win two Oscars for the exact same performance. Um, also, uh, the other honorary award this year went to Ernest Lubitsch, our good friend, friend of the podcast. <laughs> I don't even remember what good old Ernie did to become our friend. He made the love parade. Oh, wow, that's old. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy to think. We've been doing this for, I think, over a year. But I do remember last time we talked about uh, Trial Chicago 7 joining Snuff Club. So that's what I wanted to... Yeah. Anyway, we've been doing this for a while. Yeah. Let's talk about, let's talk about killing. I'm, I'm waiting for one of you guys to take it away. <laughs> well, it started out with a kiss. How does it end up like this? Um, so it doesn't start with a kiss. It starts with a robbery. <laughs> um, this was something that I, I had actually seen this before because I saw it in one of my film classes because it was about adaptation or whatever, blah, blah, blah. Um, but it starts with um, the Ernest Hemingway story of these two crooks, the titular killers, um, coming to this small town. And they go to this diner. Um, to see the Swede uh, is his name and he's not there so they kind of rough up the cook and the other cook um, and then they go to the Swede's house and they kill him and that's the, the the catalyst for the rest of the movie and that ends the uh the short story so then the rest of the movie is kind of a a back and forth, uh, a lot of flashbacks, and this is another noir movie where the the mystery is being solved by uh, an insurance agent. Nineteen uh, forties most exciting profession. He needs to determine who gets the insurance money, uh, but then he finds out. But then he continues with it for some reason because he just really wants to know who the Swede was, and the Swede was Burt Lancaster in his first ever role at thirty three years old. This is basically just Citizen Kane and Double Indemnity combined. I'm, it's the structure of Citizen Kane yeah. with like the interviews and the flashbacks, but it's an insurance agent. The first thing I was going to say is interesting, because now I'm looking at the wiki page, and the uh, billing on it is different than the billing on the film itself. And the billing on the uh, Wikipedia page makes way more sense than the billing on the film itself. Because the first thing I thought, honestly, when this movie began was, why, if this is his debut feature, is Burt Lancaster built first? And moreover, because he's not the lead of the movie. The lead is Edmund O'Brien, to me, very clearly. Um, so I was incredibly confused by that. But on Wikipedia, it seems that the theatrical poster does build Edmund O'Brien first, even though everywhere else I've seen, including the film itself, includes Burt Lancaster. Sorry, I'm a big Billy nerd. I think you all know this. Um, I'm always confused about how contracts shake out like that. But in this case, I was just so confused why Burt Lancaster was built first for a debut feature. I wonder if they were trying to market it as like an exciting debut. I mean, it Maybe. was kind of a, I mean, it was a star maker for him. It was a star maker for Ava Gardner, who plays the, uh, the femme fatale. Um, so, yeah, I mean, O'Brien was kind of a, uh, I think he was more of a veteran. Let me see. I had actually seen, he looked, Edmund O'Brien looks so familiar to me, and it's because I saw him in well, The Hitchhiker, directed by Ida Lupino. Good great movie. movie. 
I need to see that movie. But you know what I've seen him in? I've seen him in a film that came out uh, four years ago. He's in The Other Side I of the did. Wind. I saw that too. <laughs> yep. Yeah. I saw him in Man Who Shot Liberty Balance. So we've all seen him in something. <laughs> he's kind of like, he was one of those actors, I would say, because he's in a lot of stuff. He's in Julius Caesar, 1984, The Man Who Shot Liberty Balance, lots of stuff. Um, I would say he was probably one of those actors back then who was like in a lot of stuff, like one of those recognizable it lists, actors. The first thing it says on his page is, Wikipedia page is he's a character actor that was mm-hmm. yeah. prolific. Pretty much. I feel like there are a lot of those character actor types in this. Maybe that's because we're getting, you know, into the late forties, early fifties, where there are a lot of westerns being made. Um, but I recognize just about everyone in this movie from something. I am pretty sure he will pop up again too, Edmund O'Brien. I'm not sure, but I'm pretty sure. You know what I mean? Like, I did recognize a lot of people in this, and I also had the thought that uh. Well, never mind, I'm not going to say it. it's stupid. <laughs> Every time I say that, an actor reminds me of a current actor, I just always want well, to. Well, now you have to. It was Oscar Isaac. I, oh, wait, was it the guy who was dying? <laughs> yeah, I thought he looked like Oscar yeah. Isaac. Yeah, same. Burt Lancaster. R.I.P. Yeah. Oh, oh no, I was thinking yeah. one of the other um, oh. gangsters. Well, never mind. The- Dumb no. Dumb was the other one. No, I did not binky. think Dum Dum looked like. Yeah, well, Dum Dum was the one who was dying. Well, Blink, no, Blinky's the one in the bed, uh, like the Dumb at Dumb? the hospital. Was yeah, Dum we'll Dumb get the into one it. at the house? <laughs> yeah, Dum Dum's the one at the house. <laughs> anyway, um, I love the first fifteen minutes of this. It's super tense. Um, I think that the dialogue is at its most like stylized, but still very fun. I love these two hitmen who we see at the beginning. Um, and I was kind of being like, are we going to get a movie completely set in this diner while they wait for the Swede to come in? And then we didn't get that. Um, I enjoyed the rest of the movie too, but man, those first 15 minutes are fun. I think uh, those first 15 minutes, and I think in general, this movie is so technically well done. Um I'm mean, very honest. I watched this exhausted because I went to bed way too late last night. So maybe the first... I, I was really in the first 15 minutes. Then it lost me for a bit. I had to pause it and go to work. And then I watched the last half hour before this and I was way more into it because I was a, more awake. Um, so I'm probably going to like this overall less than I review unless one of you really hated it. Um, so I didn't hate it. I thought it was really well done. But I, I want to rewatch it and being more aware of it. But I did think these first 15 minutes... Considering how into it I was, considering how exhausted I was, um, was fantastic. Like, really just engrossing stuff. Uh, the shadows in this movie are incredible. Uh, uh, and the music, I wanted to mention, uh, this is starting to be a guy we see the name of a lot. <laughs> Miklos Rosa. He keeps popping up in these movies, and you know what? I typically like his scores, so... Well, the score for this, let me tell you. Uh, the score for this eventually became the theme song for Dragnet. The more oh, you know. I love Dragnet. <laughs> well, I loved it as a kid. I haven't watched it in like a decade. What do I you am. think about this, Sarah? I, well, I watched it a week ago, so I can't be expected to remember <laughs> how I feel about it. Um, I thought it was good. I enjoyed it. I I I liked it probably better than I liked the Blood to be honest, but I think that's because I think I think the main character 
what's his name? Reardon. Jim Reardon. I thought he was way more likable. So I think that probably helped. I thought that it had some good humor in it. Um, and I thought, kind of as you said, like I think that the character actors really helped. Um, yes. <laughs> sorry. Can I? Sorry. No, you go on, go on, go on. I have something stupid to say. Sorry, no, I was just going to say um, the humor was kind of in part. The humor was because of Jack Houston, who wanted everything to be very funny and very snappy. Um, and there was some tension involving that. But I think I think it was well, well used humor. I think the ending was particularly funny because the it's something where like he saw like the Reardon like solves the case. And then his boss is like, we'll save half a dime this year. And it's just like so good. Such a, such it just puts a button on probably one of the most pointless endeavors this guy has ever been on and i I appreciate the i appreciate the nihilistic ending to it so now here's my this is the dumb side tangent i'll do before we really talk about the movie which is the whole movie wait caleb you didn't say what you thought of the movie then i'll give you my side tangent as i I like the beginning a lot i don't think the rest of the film necessarily lives up to it but i think that's still really it's still a really fun movie I would also say I probably like it a little bit more than Double Indemnity. I think that's because of the structure of this, and that's really just ripping off Citizen Kane. But um, I would say Double Indemnity is probably better crafted, but this is more entertaining. I think Double Indemnity is all around better, baby. Uh, Sorry. (laughs) No, no, no. The whole time, let me tell you, the name Jim Reardon bothered me. I couldn't figure out why. And I just Googled Jim Reardon. I remember exactly why. Jim Reardon is an Academy Award nominated screenwriter and animator who, among things, directed Bring Me the Head of Charlie Brown, which I remember watching in film school. Uh, and he wrote Wally. <laughs> so I, rec- I, I don't know. This is just, I know this is a very dumb side tangent, but to me, I was like, why do I know this name? Maybe he's like a sound designer or something. Because actually, I did think, uh, I was thinking, is it like Gary Rydstrom? And that's what I thought I was maybe thinking of. Because Gary Rydstrom did the sound mixing on Wally. So I was on the right movie, <laughs> just not the right job. Sorry. I just had to say that. Because Jim Reardon, I liked Wally. The other, Wreck It Ralph's Utopia, Ralph 2, not as much as Wally. So this insurance salesman. So this insurance salesman. It was a relevant tangent. Go on, sorry, it was relevant. (laughs) So this uh, insurance agent, he's going around. He's just trying to make sure that this life insurance policy can be written out. That he knows who to go to. But when he's finding the um, the beneficiary. That kind of starts him on this weird trek of pulling up these kind of unusual clues. Then he meets up with an old cop who is friends with the Swede um, back growing up. And then kind of the two of them had a falling out because he was he caught the Swede's girlfriend stealing something. So the Swede went to framed himself uh, in her stead. And it unravels into this uh, pretty fun uh, kind of centerpiece of this heist that happened at a hat factory, which is just a weird place to have a heist. Um, and 
it's really straightforward. Um, just it's this guy goes to this one person, gets a flashback, goes to the other person, gets a flashback, slowly unwinds until the third act when he kind of unravels the whole piece of string. And then, like Sarah said, just kind of goes back to his job and nothing really mattered. Is there any part of that that like stuck out to y'all? I mean, I really enjoyed the heist. I think that it was just very well constructed. It's one of those scenes where, I mean, it was a single take, which is cool. It's one of those scenes where, like, you could tell there was a lot of, you know, like choreography with it. Um, I do want to say again because I feel like it's. I feel like this was kind of the bread and butter of the movie. Is just like all of the like accomplices that are involved in the in the heist are like really just good characters like my favorite is the sweet cellmate um love him because he has this great moment where they're like in the jail and he's talking about the stars and he says like this one he he pronounces it like orion or something he's like orion that's the great bear and it's such a great moment because you're like no it's not but it just is like it's just a great it's good character building all around because all of these even though they all have stupid names like blinky and dum-dum like they all have very distinct personalities and they they all kind of add up to this bigger picture and it kind of shows you like that the swede is just another piece of the puzzle like it could be about any of them it's just the swede was the one who you know got away with it yeah this is a really fun complicated world where like even down to that the cellmate doesn't end up going in on the heist so Mm -hmm. he doesn't need to be in the movie but he adds a lot of flavor and like it's really sad to see him late like in the present day talking about the swede because he's like no i genuinely like this guy and it sucks that he got caught up in all this um but then even down to like the swede was a boxer and so you spend a fair amount of time on the ending of his boxing career and stuff there's a lot of flavor to this movie that isn't necessary, but I think does sell uh, sell the world. Yeah, I would say the structure, which you've already mentioned, really at like allows for this type of nuance and detail that I don't really think I've seen in a noir yet. At least one that we've watched on this podcast. But even then, I'm not very familiar with noir as a genre. So, but. I do think that basically, I don't want to be like remaking Citizen Kane, but, you know, lifting the structure from Citizen Kane allows for this cool hybrid of character study of a criminal uh, that feels kind of sophisticated for 1946. Um, And I got all that when I was exhausted from pretty much every scene with with the suite. Burt Lancaster is also really interesting. He's giving like a very soft-spoken performance, and I think it makes him stand out uh, from the much more like all the other criminals have a certain amount of bravado to them, but he's he seems much more um, kind of at odds with his violent nature because even before he becomes a criminal, he's a boxer, so like he's in he's inherently always in a violent spot, but when he's away from that violence, he's this soft-spoken person. That just reminded me, because then I looked at uh, Burt Lancaster's Wikipedia page, 
Burt Lancaster was a very interesting guy. Um, he was in The Swimmer. Which is the movie we talked about. I forgot about too. that! <laughs> he's um, a four-time Oscar nominee for Best He's actor. a very interesting... He was very, very, very involved with the ACLU. He was very passionate about um, his good friend, uh, Rock Hudson's fight with AIDS. Um, he was... He just, he was very, he was very outspoken against the Vietnam War. Um, he was very, uh, he was considered, I mean, he was considered like an enemy of uh, George H.W. Bush and Richard Nixon. So he would be probably very, very liberal even today, which is interesting. He did a miniseries with Sidney Poitier, where Sidney Poitier was Thurgood Marshall. And he was uh, John W. Davis, who I don't actually know who that is <laughs> but uh it looks like it was brown about brown versus the board of education so uh, i wonder because uh, highlight for future historical context we're about to enter into the red scare in 1947 i wonder if he was ever suspected or if he ever had to go testify in front of huac i wouldn't it be, I don't know, uh, but I wouldn't be surprised considering everything I know about. Uh, it doesn't say Bert Lancaster and his stuff. It doesn't but, say specifically about it, but it does say that he was frequently uh, the target of FBI investigations. So I do see there's a section also on his page about uh, the Hollywood Ten on his wiki page about the Hollywood Ten, even though he obviously was not a member of that. Uh, but we'll talk about that next week. Yeah, big thing. Uh, but yeah, I think uh, Burt Lancaster, pretty cool guy. Uh, you know what Burt Lancaster also has? Do you? Do you Test know? hair? Oh, never mind. My transition isn't going to work. Uh, <laughs> let's go back to talking. Let's go back to talking about the movie. <laughs> I I forgot to mention that this was the year of the first turns. I think that's interesting. But Burt Lancaster, despite saying he had a long uh, theater career, does not seem to have won a Tony, according to his Mm. wiki page. Sorry, Burt. Guess your nest not successful in the world of theater. (laughs) But anyway. Uh, His last role was in Field of Dreams, which I didn't know. Yes. Movie I've never seen. Well, there was also another big star in this movie that we could talk about. Uh, uh, and that is Ava Gardner. Uh, oh, I, played... I was going to look at the, the lesser roles and see if there was someone who became famous later. Sorry, go on. She played the uh, the femme fatale, the, uh, the wife of Big Jim Colfax, who... It was Kitty something. Yes, Kitty Collins. Um, yeah, Kitty Collins. Good name. Great name for writing. Sorry, go on. She also and orders a glass of milk at one point, and I'm like, ha, the cat character. That scene milk. got me so mad. Sorry. Can I talk about that scene that we could talk about, Eva Gardner? Because she go she walks in and she goes, Oh, I'm really hungry right now. Uh I'll have a glass of warm milk. And then he orders a steak sandwich, and he's like, Oh, it's for me. And I was like, what's going on? I was so confused. I thought he was ordering a steak sandwich. For her, because she's explicitly said, I haven't eaten anything all day. But he's like, no, this is for me. He literally says, this is for me when the food arrives. 
power well, plays. You can't. I mean, she's having milk. That's going to be it for her. <laughs> so, yeah, Kitty is, she's a classic femme fatale character. At one point, uh, the Swede, is his name Pete? Because he has a bunch of names. Pete, whatever. He has, um, he has another girlfriend who ends up marrying his best friend. It's a little complicated. Um, like, Kitty basically just, like, seduces him right in front of the girlfriend, but it doesn't take that much effort. Um, the Swede is a himbo. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, Kitty is kind of, she's kind of the catalyst throughout the whole thing. Like, she tells, she gets the Swede in on the crime, and then he takes the fall for her, and then she tells him later that they're going to double cross him. Um, but then she double crosses him. So, you know, just like a very, I wouldn't say she's like anything particularly special in terms of character, but she's kind of, you know, the archetype, the femme fatale. She sings a little song, plays a little, a little role. Um, they threatened to, uh, slap Ava Gardner if she didn't get the take right, which is always, uh, an interesting piece of trivia. So. <laughs> I'm reading about Ava Gardner right now. I'm like, oh my gosh, what an interesting life. Oh, does she have an interesting life too? Uh, she married Frank Sinatra, uh, but uh, Frank Sinatra was currently married at the time they were dating, uh, and uh, she had the reputation of being a femme fatale in like obviously because that's the type of role she played. So they're like, how dare Frank Sinatra fall for the femme fatale? Uh, but apparently, it did not. Uh, not go was not a good relationship at all uh and uh is she uh i don't know you can read about it it's actually pretty interesting it's an interesting thing i think comparing um ava gardner's kitty to uh barbara stanwick's character in double double indemnity is interesting because i think they're playing both sides of the femme fatale coin where stanwick's is obviously it's full of uh, sexual innuendo and a lot of banter and stuff, but Kitty comes off as much more believably um, duplicitous, where I'm like, I can see why all these people are kind of falling for her. She is, she's playing a lot more innocent, but it feels much more like she understands what she's doing. Yeah, to me it makes sense why it's a star-making role. If it, it... She's not in it a lot, but when she is in it, you're kind of just like, who? Like to me, it's like one of those things. Where it's like, who is this type of thing? Uh, and I feel like that's a good way to define, like, you know, like whenever nowadays when there's a movie where I don't know the actor, but I'm like, wow, they're really good. It's like, like the best example I can always think of is a uh, Bridge of Spies and Mark Rylance in recent times, where even though he popped up in movies before, it's like, what? Like, where did this guy come from? Uh, but yeah, I'm still on Ava Gardner's Wikipedia page, guys. She 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 courted Mike Nichols for the role of Mrs. Robinson in The Graduate. Mm. But that would have been a good casting. Nichols said that he preferred to cast someone younger. Womp womp. She was oh, 44 yeah, she at was, the time. Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah, because I don't I can't remember who played Mrs. Robinson. Like it's Anne Bancroft. It's on. Yeah, Anne Bancroft was not that old. She was 35. <laughs> Um, the other thing I noticed about Ava Gardner on her Wikipedia page, which would be the last thing I'll say from her Wikipedia page, trust me, I'll close it, is that she was in, well, she was in, she was portrayed in The Aviator, 
um, by Kate Beckinsale. And she, yeah, because she was in a relationship with uh, Howard Hughes. Yeah, she's not that. If I remember right, that role is not in the movie much. But nineteen forty six, Howard Hughes almost died in nineteen forty six. That's when he had one of his huge air, uh, air crashes. That doesn't have anything to do with anything, yeah. but. I still do research on the years, even if there's nothing relevant to talk about. So sometimes I feel like I have to throw out what I what I read. There is one other big name involved with this film, but he's uncredited. John Huston wrote co-wrote the script. I literally said that at the beginning. We didn't talk about John. Huston. <laughs> Fine, whatever. I okay. did talk about him. We could talk. He's about only him one of the humor. What? He put all the humor into the script. Oh. We talk about, well, I don't know. When we get to the end, I'll talk about the best line of this movie, which if you don't agree with me, I'm going to yell at you guys because I think this movie very clearly has a best line in it. Personally. That's well, what is it? Oh, you want me to say it now? I thought we were going to talk about the ending. Or are we not going to talk about the ending? Just, talk about, just say the line. The line is when uh, Kitty asks her husband to exonerate her, uh, one of them says, one of the other two say, don't ask a dying man to lie his soul into hell. Which is such a good lie. <laughs> as soon as they said that, I was like, ooh, that's good. There's a lot of good, like, um, use of slang in here. Um, one of my favorites was uh, this one. His His boxing manager was talking about all the money he's losing because he's a burnt out boxer, and he's like, and that's not a lot of hay to me, which is just a fun way of saying that's a lot of money. Now, I think in general, the the dialogue here is so good um, in the sense that I feel like when it knows it needs to be, it's still functional. Like, if that makes sense. It's like, because it, it, this film is partially just procedural. It's not trying to spice up its language unless it actually matters. I thought it... I don't know, I just think it was all done. I like this movie, even if I don't remember half of it, and I watched it today. Okay? Do you remember Do you remember the heist scene, though? See, that was the last thing I walked before I went to. I don't really remember that well. That's why I want to rewatch this movie, oh, is because I was so exhausted this morning. After going to work and eating like dinner and finishing it, I was more like awake for those last 30 minutes. But I was just wiped out this morning. So I try not to be. I try not to be the kind of film guy who's like, Oh, it's all about the one takes, man. But this one was so well choreographed. You seen Touch of uh, Evil? It was shot so well. Sorry, I just wanted to say that. You seen Touch of Evil? <laughs> well, it's just it's such a complex shot, and oh. it's it it just really stands out. All right, is there anything else we want to say about the movie? Oh, I had one thing that I wanted to say. Sorry, I just there's such a. There's such a charm with these old movies because they're just so they're so ridiculous. And the there's a scene where like their their big source of evidence comes from one of the one of the perpetrators of the heist, and he's very sick on his deathbed, and he like word for word recites exactly what happened on that day, and it's just so silly. And I just it just doesn't it, you can't make a scene like that today. I like you just can't. It's, it's just so goofy, but it works I, in the film. Well, I think it's particularly funny in this film because of the inconsistency of the constant mention this woman would never be able to remember her face. 
this other woman. And then this guy's like, I remember exactly what everyone said. It's just so goofy. And it's just like, like they're like asking him questions and he's like going through the whole thing, but he's like dying. And it's just, and they do that whole, you know, they close his eyes and it looks really, it looks really fake. It's just such a goofy scene, but it's just, there's something to be said about how, how they built the world where like a scene like that, where it kind of takes me out of the film, but then I'm like, well, of course this happened. Yeah. Well, and and they do point out in the scene, it's like, well, we can't take this to a judge, so we have to keep going. Um, Did either of you think that his cop buddy was going to somehow be involved? Um, no, but I thought he was. So I'm shrugging. <laughs> I thought he was gonna die. I thought the cop was gonna like, you know, get killed. But a cab. He just was a very yeah. That's the thing. Unrealistic. He's a very nice cop. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I just I don't know something about this insurance agent just involved in this in this crime. This guy he's never met. These people he's never met. I mean, it's just goofy. But it's just Not realistic. It's goofy, but it's like, I don't know. I feel like you're meant to find some humor in it. And that's what I appreciate about it is that it doesn't take itself completely seriously. Imagine, imagine your all state representative coming up and then pulling a 45 out of his like pocket. Like it doesn't make sense. All right. Shall we wrap it up and do our awards? Hope. You read my mind. That's me. Oh, that's what it's. Can you can you read my mind? <laughs> oh, great. Um, whatever. Uh, Sarah, <laughs> remind us what this was nominated for. Yes, uh, it was nominated for best director for Robert Sodemac, uh, best film editing, best scoring of a dramatic or comedy picture, and best adapted screenplay. All right. So, despite me being tired for half of it, I think this has a pretty obvious choice for me. And that is, I think this might be the first time I've given this out, is uh, I'm going to give it Best Director. I think this film excels on pretty much every technical level it's aiming for. I think all the performances reach where they need to be. Uh, and to me, though, very, I think that makes a film be Best Director rather than me like singling out, say, the editing or... The, the dialogue, which I really liked, is the fact that this felt like um, it felt like it was incredibly in control of all its technical aspects. So I think uh, I got to give it best director. For uh, his name again, Robert Sadamak. Did I say it right? Cool. Who knows? Um, <laughs> okay. I'm... He doesn't care. I'm going to say, ignoring ignoring the other films that we've covered coming out of this year, because otherwise my opinion would be different, um, I'm going to say Adaptive Screenplay. thought it was good. thought it was well-written. All three writers did a good job. I think both of those were good options. Um, I'm going to go with editing, because this is a hard structure to pull off, and keep a good pace because constant flashbacks can get old but i don't think that really happened here and there was only one or two times when i felt like they could have tightened up those edits um so i'll give it to editing all right add a nomination um man lots of good supporting roles you could do but 
Uh, I'm going to say Burt Lancaster in supporting because he really, he's not the lead. He's top build, but he's barely in this movie. However, when he is in it, he leaves an impression. Um, and it could, this movie could fail if the kind of MacGuffin character wasn't more interesting. Um, so Burt Lancaster. Is that supporting, right? Yeah. 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 Okay. Um, I'm going to give it cinematography. Because of that log take. <laughs> and not just that. It's I really mean, good. there are other moments that I think are really well framed and well shot. And especially I, when you have a noir, like shadows are very important. Um, and it does. That's it what I was well. going to say. I thought the shadows were good. Um, so I was going to say cinematography, but like I always do when I hear someone else say something, I'm going to go to my backup, which is I thought the production design here was also really good. The production design was constantly really nice to look at. Um, it looked be complex uh, and i also just like saying production design because i feel like it's an underrated craft when people talk about films i like ah. that there was a constellation in the jail cell that was yeah. a nice little touch now before we move on i think i found two other things i need to say about this first off uh i alluded to it briefly and i'll just say it quickly because i know it does it's not actually relevant but the first tonys were this year and our boy frederick march one go fred Second, which I think is relevant, and I'm surprised we did not mention, this film was remade in 1964. Um, and that is relevant because it is the last film that has Ronald Reagan acting in it. Is ah. he playing Burt Lancaster's role? Because it sounds like they are polar opposite people. He plays Jack Browning, who, in, is that, who played him in this film. Who is the equivalent of Jack Browning? In this film, uh, I don't know. I, I think mean, he's, Reagan was never like lead. Role. He's Colfax. He's Colfax. He's the equivalent of Colfax in this. So, well, if you want to see Ronald Reagan get shot, watch The Killers, nineteen sixty four, or just watch that video of him getting shot. <laughs> That's true, I forgot that. Happened. Yeah, I was gonna say, uh, what? <laughs> Alright. Shall I, you guys ready for me to announce what the next one is? Can't be worse than more, Don't Look Up. You need more killers references you need to get out, Sarah? Oh, um, uh, 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 I'm throwing caution into the wind. Tell me. All right. Well, next time we're going to reach our big 20th Academy Awards. And it's not a two-part. It's just one film. It had five nominations and no wins. It is directed by Edward Dimitrik, who I'm trying to see if we've covered on this podcast. Nope, it'll be our first time we talk about him. Uh, And Caleb will have a lot to talk about in historic context, looking at what pops up as his main thing on letterbox that he's famous for um and it is drumroll please crossfire so get out your fox news john stewart jokes from 2003 come on guys everyone's seen that youtube video i'm getting blank stares oh this is is very interesting huh for a 1947 film it's subject matter very interesting we got Robert Mitchum. 
Heck yeah. All right, so we'll talk about that next time. Uh, let's say where we can find ourselves now. I'm Danny Vincent. You can find me on Letterboxd at Blankets. But moreover, you can watch my other podcast. Watch, not listen to it. I expect you to stare at your phone the entire time we are talking. Uh, we, we talk about Marvel movies. It's called Why Is with Ty and Dan. Sarah was just on it a couple weeks ago talking about Evil Dead 2, everyone's favorite Marvel movie. I hope that Sam Raimi never never finds that episode. He's going to be like, who is this woman and why is she so obsessed with me? <laughs> so that's available everywhere you can find your podcasts. I'm Caleb Bunn. You can find me at Caleb from the Real World on Instagram, YouTube, and TikTok. You can also follow me at Letterboxd at The Myth King, where you can read my Pacify review, which ends a five-year running bit, and I feel free. Wait, did it happen? Yeah, it I happened. missed it. I wait- yeah. Oh my gosh, I have to immediately <laughs> look up your Letterboxd right now. I can't believe I missed that. I I was waiting for that for so long. Oh my gosh, I can't believe I missed that. And you can uh, listen to my podcast, Star Wars Therapy. We just have a newish or a new episode out on what we want the future of Star Wars to be. I have some hot takes. Um, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram, uh, SGK29, E-S-S-G-E-E-K-Y-29. Uh, you can find me on Letterboxd, Sarah Kanaw. Uh, you can also find my <laughs> my blog, uh, Sarah's Watch Recap, .wordpress.com. Uh, you can also find us on Facebook, the Snub Club, uh, Twitter, Snub Club Pod, uh, Instagram, Snub Club Podcast. Uh, I think that's it. Also, we forgot to mention, <laughs> we might might have our first guest oh yeah we might we'll see what happens i'm i'm holding out hope i will see (laughs) and special thanks to our editor joe thank you joe please cut out my borat reference (laughs) and you can check him out at all new 52 join us next time for crossfire which We'll hopefully have a guess for. And moreover, we won't be talking about the 94th Academy Awards steering. So that's a double win. So, bye. Bye. Bye.